Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 24, Numbers chapters 20 and 21. After the interlude of Numbers chapters 18 and 19 that sought to make the point that the priesthood the Lord established was permanent and it was needed, and the ordaining and the reissuing in more detail of some instructions, at least regarding holiness and purification and the terribly serious nature of impurity caused by death, now chapter 20 picks up again with the actual journey, that 40-year journey of the Israelites towards the promised land. What we're about to read takes place around 40 years after the Israelites fled Egypt, so their time of wandering is getting near to its close. Let's turn to uh, our Bibles and read Numbers chapter 20, uh, all of it. That's Numbers chapter 20. Turn your Bibles to Numbers chapter 20. In your complete Jewish Bible, that would be page 172. Numbers chapter 20. Now the people of Israel, the whole community, entered the Sin Desert. And in the first month they stayed at Kadesh. There Miriam died, and there she was buried. Because the community had no water, they assembled themselves together against Moses and Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses, and they said... We wish we had died when our brothers died before Adonai. Why did you bring Adonai's community into this desert? To die here, we and all of our livestock? Why did you make us leave Egypt? You bring us to this terrible place without seed, figs, grapevines, pomegranates, or even water to drink. And Moses and Aaron left the assembly, and they went to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and they fell on their faces, and the glory of Adonai appeared to them. And Adonai said to Moses, Take the staff, assemble the community, you and Aaron, your brother, and before their eyes, tell the rock to produce its water. You will bring them water out of the rock, and thus enable the community and their livestock to drink. Well, Moses took the staff from the presence of Adonai as he had ordered him. But after Moses and Aaron assembled the community in front of the rock, he said to them, Listen here, you rebels. Are we supposed to bring you water from this rock? Then Moses raised his hand and hit the rock twice with his staff. Water flowed out in abundance, and the community and their livestock drank. But Adonai said to Moses and Aaron, Because you didn't trust in me, so as to cause me to be regarded as holy by the people of Israel, you will not bring this community into the land I have given them. This is Mirabah Spring where the people of Israel disputed with Adonai, and he caused them, he, and, and he was caused to be regarded as holy by them. Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom. This is what your brother Israel says. You know all the troubles we've gone through, that our ancestors went down into Egypt, we lived in Egypt for a long time, and the Egyptians treated us and our ancestors badly. But when we cried out to Adonai, he heard us, and he sent an angel and brought us out of Egypt. Now, here we are in Kadesh, a city at the edge of your territory. Please, let us just pass through your land. We will not go through fields or vineyards. We won't even drink any of the water from the wells. We will go along the king's highway, not turning aside, either to the right or the left, until we've left your territory. 
But Edom answered, You are not to pass through my land. If you do, I'll come out against you with the sword. And the people of Israel replied, We'll keep to the highway. If we do drink water, either we are a livestock, we'll pay for it. Just let us pass through on foot. It's nothing. But he said, You are not to pass through. And Edom came out against them with many people and much force. Thus, Edom refused to allow Israel passage through its territory, so Israel turned away. Well, they traveled on from Kadesh and the people of Israel. The whole community arrived at Mount Hor. Now, at Mount Hor, by the border of the land of Edom, Adonai said to Moses and Aaron, Aaron is about to be gathered to his people, because he is not to enter the land I have given to the people of Israel. Inasmuch as you rebelled against what I said at Meribah Spring. Now take Aaron and Eleazar his son and bring them up to Mount Hor. Remove the garments from Aaron and put them on Eleazar his son. Aaron will be gathered to his people. He will die there. Moses did as Aaron as uh, Moses did as Adonai had ordered. They went up unto Mount Hor before the eyes of the whole community. Moses removed the garments from Aaron, put them on Eleazar his son, and Aaron died there on top of the mountain. Then Moses and Eleazar came down the mountain. When the entire community saw that Aaron was dead, they mourned Aaron for thirty days, the whole house of Israel. Well, Israel arrives at the southernmost border of the region of Canaan as they closed in on their destination. Now, the place is called Kadesh, and it's usually considered to be one and the same as Kadesh Barnea. This was a desert region, and we're told that this place was also called the Wilderness of Tzin. Now, where the Wilderness of Paran leaves off, you can see that here on this map, the Wilderness of Tzin begins. So Israel was more or less at the boundary between two geographical areas. Now, with virtually no comment and zero emotion, we're told that Miriam, sister to Moses and Aaron, dies and is buried there. Now, now Hebrew literature, particularly the Bible, is so very different in many respects to other literature of its own day and, and well into the future, for that matter. When we read Egyptian or Hittite or Arabian or later on Greek and Roman historical accounts, they tend to dwell on the circumstances surrounding deaths of their heroes and great battles. And, and just like our modern-day Hollywood films that tend to focus on conflict and carnage because people find it more interesting than character development and the establishment of principles, it's been that way since time immemorial. Yet, here we have a great example of how the Bible deals with these matters. Perhaps the central female figure in the Old Testament, Miriam, of course if we have to discount Eve, because she's kind of a special category of woman, dies, you know, and it's listed as little more than a minor accounting record. We might say in a knee-jerk reaction that perhaps it was because she was a woman in a male-dominated society, so she had little value. But, you know, we don't get significantly more verbiage when we come to the deaths of Moses and Aaron and most of the other primary male biblical figures, so gender is certainly not the issue. It is truly fascinating or ironic or maybe both that the focal female personage of both the Old and the New Testaments are each named Miriam. 
because the mother of Jesus, who Christianity tends to call Mary, was a Jew. But Mary was not a Jewish name. Her real and actual given Hebrew name was Miriam. And as we've often seen in the journey of the Israelites, once again they're in need of water. And once again they go to Moses and want to know what he's going to do about it. And once again they openly express their distress at being let out into a barren place when what they really longed for lay behind them in Egypt. Back in Egypt, they say, they had plenty of food, figs and grapes and pomegranates and more pertinent to this story, plenty of water. You know, living along the Nile meant they never thirsted for enough water. Well, not knowing what else to do, Aaron and Moses go to the wilderness tabernacle and there they fall on their faces and worship seeking the counsel of the Lord. And Yehovah appears to them and he speaks to them and the, the, the gist of the conversation is that Aaron is to take his rod, his staff, that, that one that budded with almond blossoms, and then walk over to some large conspicuous rock that was apparently nearby. And, and there at that rock they were to assemble the whole community of Israel, as a witness to what was about to happen. Then Moses was to speak, or or better, order that rock to give up its water. What Moses did is he was told. And he took the rod, and he went to the rock, and then he proceeded to speak very harshly to the people. And basically he says, you know, you always come griping to me. And you expect me to handle everything for you. Somehow or another, even in a place where there's no water, I'm supposed to just manufacture it for you. I'm supposed to fix all these problems as though I made them in the first place. Then he turns around and whacks the rock with Aaron's staff twice and out flowed apparently enormous volumes of water. Because for three million people, and then all those animals that were with them to survive, the U.S. Army Quartermaster estimates it would take something something on the order of 11 million gallons of water for them every day. Well, the people were happy enough. Turns out the Lord didn't feel quite the same way about this whole thing. He, he informs Moses and Aaron that because they did not affirm God's sanctity in front of the Israelite community, that neither of them are going to enter the promised land. Now, we have no record of a response or reaction from Moses or Aaron about this, but one can only imagine the shock and the depression from this edict of God. And, and I think anyone studying this story might might ask himself, why? Why such a harsh decree from the Lord upon the very two men who he has used and uh, to some degree used up to achieve his purposes? What is it that Moses and Aaron did that would bring this sort of wrath from God? Well, the obvious is that Moses disobeyed God, but this wasn't the first time. Okay. He hit the rock that he was only supposed to verbally order to produce, rock, uh, produce water. But you know, this seems so small of a thing in comparison to what he had done on behalf of the Lord and, and, and obedience to the Lord as compared to the consequences he was about to receive. In truth, there have been many theories produced to explain this devastating 
retribution upon Moses and Aaron, and uh, a lot of them make a lot of good sense. Uh, among these theories are that striking the rock once, uh, twice instead of once, uh, was the issue. Also, that his character flaws were perhaps being displayed. Uh, that, that Moses had a blazing temper, and it showed that he cared very little for a very real need of the people, water, and, and thus kind of took this whole matter of the people needing water as a bother to him personally. And another is that he doubted God. And, and God told him actually exactly that. Because you did not trust in me, God said. And of course the most popular theory is that he struck the rock instead of speaking to it, as ordered by God. Now, I, I think that the matter primarily comes down to an attitude that Moses displayed in front of all Israel, in which he really unintentionally validated a pagan belief held by most people in that era. And in doing so, he failed to show God as the one who brings forth the water, not a man. Now we have to remember that Israel was just a few months um, had, had a few years rather removed from from Egypt, and they behaved and they thought more as Egyptians than Hebrews. Deep seated in their belief system was the acceptance of magic and of sorcerers, men who possessed special power that was loaned to them by the gods. Thus, sorcerers invariably made quite a show of it all using incantations accompanied by all sorts of gestures, you know, with that magic wand, presto, changeo, when when they did all their magic. And naturally these magicians were greatly feared and revered for the power they, they seemed to possess. Now Moses and Aaron took credit for the water coming forth from the rock. In fact, in the way they behaved, they implied it was by their own power that this amazing thing happened because verse 10 says, Listen here, you rebels. Are we, Moses and Aaron, supposed to bring you water from this rock? And then Moses turns around and strikes the rock and water gushes out. Well, some of the great Hebrew sages say that this great sin that actually resulted from Moses saying, Notsi, N-O-T-S-I, Notsi, meaning, shall we draw forth, when what he should have said is, Yotsi, Y-O-T-S-I, Yotsi, meaning, shall he draw forth. By saying Notsi, Moses was giving credit to he and Aaron as though they had the power of sorcerers to call forth water from a rock instead of directing all praise and honor and glory to Yehoveh, who is the one with the power. Well, the result of this rash public indiscretion is that it reflected badly on God. Thus the Lord says in verse 12, But Adonai said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust in me, so as to cause me to be regarded as holy by the people of Israel. See, the water being miraculously provided for the people from this inert rock should have been yet another opportunity for God to display his, his, his power and mercy and love and unlimited ability to care for his own as well as his immutable uniqueness. 
that's so apart from men or these other gods. The sanctity that should have been accorded to Yehovah became all muddled in the minds of those who could have benefited greatly from the lesson that among the Hebrews there will be no sorcery or sorcerers. Well, the Hebrew word used in verse 12 is holy, or maybe depending on your Bible version it might say sanctified, is kadash. In other words, God says that he was not kadash as he should have been in the provisioning of the water from the rock. And from the root of the word kadash comes kadosh, kodesh, and and several other forms of the word that all center on this difficult concept of holiness. Now, as I told you in an earlier lesson, in reality, the root of kadash is generic in its meaning and only applies to the divine if used in that context. Kadash generally means to set apart or or to make separate, to to make a distinction among things. Thus, I gave you the example of my wife separating dark loads from light loads when she's doing laundry and that the Hebrew word Kadash could absolutely appropriately be used to describe her act of separating one color of clothing from another before she washed them. Well, God wanted to show, yet again, that he stood alone, distinct, apart from any other being. But instead, Moses and Aaron attempted to show themselves as being distinct and apart, essentially, from Israel. They showed themselves as inherently possessing many of the powers of Jehovah. Now, since God was denied his due in the miracle of the water from the rock, Moses and Aaron would be be denied their due from being the leaders of Israel and having the privilege of leading them into the promised land. For when verse 12 is completed, it says, you will not bring this community into the land I've given to them. You know, what a huge warning this is, especially to those who hold themselves up as God's representatives and leaders of his congregation of believers on this earth. You know how, how many pastors and teachers and prophets claim a power and ability of their own to be used at their own discretion, when in fact they have no inherent power at all. Or they claim personal credit for acts of God. You know, not even a week ago, I heard a TV pastor who was trolling for funds for his ministry say that if people would send him $1,000, he would covenant with them and vow them a threefold return in their investment in his ministry. That's right. He was proudly saying that he had the spiritual power to cause God to miraculously give you back 3,000 for every thousand you sent his particular ministry. Ludicrous. Well, let me be very clear on this. Moses' penalty for displaying such a haughty attitude and also misleading people into thinking something that is simply not the truth is that he was never allowed to enter into the promised land. Now, as was usually the case in that era, 
the place where this all happened was named according to what happened there. So the place where this happened became known as the waters of Meribah. Meribah means quarreling or disputing. And it's fascinating that despite Moses and Aaron's high-handed sin against the Lord and despite the quarreling of the people aimed at God, in the end he still used it all to affirm his Kadesh, his holiness, his sanctity. Now it would seem that the object of the people's anger and frustration was Moses. But as we keep being reminded, whatever issues we might have with God's mediator is no different than having that issue with God. How we respond to God's mediator is the same as responding to Jehovah himself. Well, now suddenly in verse 14, the, the scene shifts. Now, the first time Israel was attempting to enter Canaan some 38 years earlier, it was from the south. In fact, it wasn't very far from this, this place that they were at now, Kadesh. So Moses decides on a different approach. He's going to try to enter the promised land from the east. But, but there's a problem. The most direct route to the place where Moses wishes to cross into Canaan, the Jordan River, requires going through the territory of Edom. Now, etiquette and good statesmanship requires that emissaries, that is, as representatives of Israel, are sent to the king of Edom to, to ask his permission respectfully to pass through the land of Edom. So Moses sends a message to whoever was the current king, we, we don't know because his name isn't included, He says to him, please allow us, Israel, to pass through. After all, we are your brothers. Now that that statement about being brothers was no self-serving flattery, nor was was Moses calling Edom brother uh, just a figure of speech or a Middle Eastern display of friendship, because indeed Israel was Edom's brother. See, recall now Jacob is Israel's alternate name. Jacob's twin brother, Esau, is Edom. This wasn't symbolism, because Edom is just another name for Esau, as Israel is just another name for Jacob. So even though the last time the Bible spoke of some dealings with a repentant Jacob, who, if you'll recall, was returning home, with his two wives and his children, they were returning home to Canaan from up in Mesopotamia, and, and, and then he met up with his forgiving twin brother, Esau, who had his birthright stolen by Jacob. Well, apparently, attitudes had changed a lot over the last five centuries, or at least as far as Esau's descendants were concerned. Now, interestingly, all evidence and some reliable Egyptian records tell us that Edom, at the time of the Exodus, did not have any walled cities in their territory. Very unusual. They even had just a few prominent villages. See, because the people of Edom were nomadic. Very much Bedouin-like. Yet it's obvious from these same records that they were a formidable people. And they didn't seem to have any problem mounting a sizable militia for their defense when they needed one. And that's exactly what happened here. Now, despite Moses' plea to the king of Edom to remember their common family and blood heritage and, and gave them a promise of peace and respect, the king 
still denies them entry into his region. Well, Moses retorts by promising not to take any path at all except the king's highway to cross straight through. He wouldn't even take any water from Edom's wells. In fact, he says they'll hurry across through their territory. But the king's answer remains swift and sure. No. He says if you try to cross through, we'll attack you. Well, in order that Moses understands that this is not an idle threat, the king sends a large contingent of men to block their path. Moses got the message. And Israel turned away from Edom and headed towards a place called Mount Hor that was on the edge of Edom, but not in Edom. Now, exactly where Mount Hor is located is, is disputed. First of all, Mount Hor is obviously some kind of a generic name because Hor is but a derivative of the Hebrew word Har, which means mountain. So if we take this term literally, they went to a place that was called Mount Mountain, all right, which is highly unlikely. So probably this just indicates that wherever they went was the most prominent feature, or the most prominent feature was a, was a mountain, so they just named it the place of the mountain or something like that. Anyway, moving along quickly, the scriptures tell us that the Lord now decides that Aaron's days are completed, and it will be at Mount Hor that Aaron will die. Now, as is the custom of this era, the words telling of Aaron's pending death are, let Aaron be gathered to his kin. And as we've often discussed on a number of occasions, but I just don't think this point can ever be made often enough until it's really firm in our minds, this, this idea of gathered to his kin was an ancestor worship related phrase. And while today we would say of a departed believer, he died and went to be with the Lord, no such thought of anything like that, even remotely existed to the Israelites, neither of the Exodus nor of much, much later times. Rather, the thought and the hope was that some mysterious life essence of himself would live on with his ancestors, not with God. Now, why is that important for us to grasp? Because the Hebrews were always living on the edge of idolatry, and they had a most difficult time divesting themselves of centuries of pagan beliefs that they lived under and were surrounded by. The concepts that the average Christian holds today about death and dying and a whole laundry list of other principles weren't yet developed in these ancient Israelites. The laws and commands they received from God, they took in the life context of their current beliefs and in their current living situation and generally only added it to all added all of this to their lives in small doses in one form or another now the beliefs in the days of Moses that the Israelites held could be said to generally match those practiced by Egypt. And of course, as I've mentioned on numerous occasions, the Israelites behaved far more like Egyptians at this moment. Now, let me give you an example of what I'm getting at, though, when I speak of the term life context. That, that I, and, and I'm hoping that this will make an impact on you, not just in, 
helping us all to identify with those very real biblical Hebrews of the Bible, and in helping us to think in the terms as they thought, as we read the Bible, but also as we deal with modern-day Christians and brothers and sisters who live outside of the U.S. and cultures that are at total odds with our own. American believers in particular, we tend to think that our views and doctrines are the views and doctrines and traditions, and everything else is error and improper. Now, for example, the American church is very prosperity-oriented. And in general, our doctrine in this regard can be summed up by saying that prosperity is not only a hope for, but in many cases, an expected blessing from the Lord as a reward for our belief and trust in Him. And that if we do not have material prosperity, it's often seen as an outward sign of perhaps our personal lack of faith or commitment to our local congregation or to God. In other words, in America, we expect prosperity blessings to include or even be completely centered upon material wealth, nice cars, big houses, designer clothes, high-paying jobs, all these things being indicators, at least partially, of our standing with the Lord. Thus, if you have little prosperity, you must have little faith, and thus little standing with God. Now, while the European and Eastern churches also have their own version of a prosperity doctrine, theirs is all about health, peace, children, and well-being. In, in fact, the European and Eastern churches are generally anti-material prosperity. They see the possession of personal material prosperity as crude and pagan, strictly against the teachings of Christ. A, a Christian who has done well financially is generally looked down upon, and their faith is even suspect. To pray for or seek material prosperity is an unthinkable thing for them. It would be the height of apostasy to their thinking. Now, why these enormous differences between the American church view of the place of prosperity in our doctrines versus almost all other churches in the other nations on this planet? Different life contexts. Our American society is a wealth-oriented society from top to bottom. From just a secular viewpoint alone, Americans who don't have the things we desire and want are seen as underprivileged and downtrodden. And our goal is generally to always strive for more so that we have expectations about our lives that tomorrow... We're going to have more than we had yesterday. And as Christians, we have a helper in God to see to it that we achieve material prosperity that's so important to us. That's the American life context. In Europe and the Eastern societies, who are more socialistic in their thinking, less is more. In fact, to the European Christian, less is more godly. Equality is not an equal opportunity to advance in that society. 
Equality literally means everybody living in the same condition. A doctor should be the paid the same as a custodian. A coal miner should have the same size department as a company CEO. There should be no rich. There should be no poor. If I have plenty of food, so should you. My prosperity, by definition, takes away from yours. Because under socialism, the economy is a zero-sum game. That is, there's a finite amount of resources to be spread around. The goal is equal sufficiency for all. That is their life context. Obviously, I'm generalizing because nothing is quite this neat and clean. So, which doctrine of prosperity is right? The American one or the Eastern and European one? Well, we're not going to debate that today. The point is that our American Christian viewpoint and their Eastern Christian viewpoint about prosperity, these were adapted to the realities of our respective societies, not the other way around. So whatever God told the ancient Hebrews, they took it within the life context of their already long-held beliefs, not as a complete replacement of their old beliefs. They didn't somehow just remove centuries of ideas from their minds about what seemed to them to be self-evident about life and the world of the gods. They just added what they were given by Moses at Mount Sinai to the mix. Therefore, it was automatic that since Aaron was a good man, that when he died, naturally his life essence would, as a reward, go on to live with his departed family members, his deceased ancestral kin. As Israel was on the verge of entering the promised land, and, and Aaron, and, and as Aaron and Moses were to be excluded because they struck the rock, with Aaron's staff and took personal credit for it, it was now time for Aaron to be replaced. Further, the Lord ordered that Aaron was to strip of his high priest garments and turn them over to Eleazar, his own son, who would assume the position as the new high priest. Well, Moses did as he was told, and he led Eleazar and Aaron to the summit of Mount Hor. And verse 27 makes the point that the entire congregation of Israel witnessed this event. Now, high up on the mountain, Aaron died, and Eleazar became the new high priest. Now, please notice a couple of things. First, as with the death of Miriam, the death of Aaron is just a matter of fact. There is no eulogy. There's no recounting of his great sacrifice and service to the Lord and to the people of Israel. This is the standard biblical treatment of the passing of all the great Bible personalities. Second point, Aaron was indeed a fortunate man. He lived to know that his own son would succeed him as high priest. Because as we're soon going to find out, Moses received no such honor. A son succeeding his father was a cherished tradition that the father hoped for. A father passing on his business or his mantle of leadership to his son to succeed him still means something to us in our era. But it was everything in ancient times. That Moses' sons did not become the new God-appointed leaders of Israel must have been greatly disappointing to Moses. 
Well, when Moses and Eleazar, the new high priest, comes back down the mountain without Aaron, the nation of Israel knows that Aaron's gone. And so the whole of Israel mourns for 30 days. You know, why did Moses and the others ascend a mountain for this event? Well, as you've probably noticed by now, great spiritual ventures in the Old Testament tend to take place on mountaintops. And part of this is because it was believed the gods lived on mountaintops. And as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, it is now known that El Shaddai means God of the mountain. For God to call Moses and Aaron and Eleazar to come up to the mountaintop indicated a momentous spiritual event was occurring in the presence of God. Yet God was not dwelling on a mountaintop right now. The wilderness tabernacle was his earthly abode. So why didn't God just call him to the tabernacle as a good place for Aaron to die? Because there was no way that Aaron could die in the tabernacle area or it would have defiled God's holiness. So it had to be up on a mountaintop, a high place that in Hebrew is called Bemah, that this important changing of the guard would take place. Let's, let's move on quickly now to chapter 21. Numbers chapter 21. I'm going to read the whole chapter. Then the king of Arad, a Canaani who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was approaching by way of Atarim, and so he attacked Israel and took some of them captive. Israel made a vow to Adonai, If you will hand this people over to me, I will completely destroy their cities. Adonai listened to what Israel said and handed over the Canaanim, so that they completely destroyed them in their cities and named the place Hormah. Then they traveled from Mount Hor on the road towards the Sea of Suf in order to go around the land of Edom. But the people's tempers grew short because of this detour. The people spoke against God and against Moses. Oh, why did you bring us out of Egypt to die in this desert? There's no real food, there's no water, and we're sick of this miserable stuff we're eating. In response, Adonai sent poisonous snakes among the people. They bit the people, and many of Israel died. The people came to Moses and said, we sinned by speaking against Adonai and against you. Pray to Adonai that he rid us of these snakes. Moses prayed for the people. And Adonai answered Moses, Make a poisonous snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who has been bitten sees it, and he will live. Moses made a bronze snake, and he put it on the pole. If a snake had bitten someone, then when he looked towards the bronze snake, he stayed alive. The people of Israel traveled on and camped, at a boat. <clears throat> and from a boat they traveled and camped at Yehavarim, and in the desert uh, fronting Moab on the east. From here they traveled and camped at Wadi Sered, and from there they traveled and camped on the other side of the Arnon in the desert. This river comes out of the territory of the Amori, for the Arnon is the boundary between Moab and the Amori. This is why it says in the book of the wars of Adonai, Vahev at Sufa, the wadis of Arnon, and the slope of the wadis extending as far as the site of Ar, which, is, which lies next to the territory of Moab. 
Well, from there they went on to Be'er, and that is the well about which Adonai said to Moses, Assemble the people and I will give them water. Then Israel sang this song. Spring up, O well, sing to the well sunk by the princes, dug by the people's leaders with the scepter and with the staffs. And from the desert they went to Matanah, and from Matanah to Nachat-Liel, and from Nachat-Liel to Bamot, and from Bamot to the valley by the plain of Moab at the start of the Pisgah range, where it overlooks the desert. Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Emori, with this message. Let me pass through your land. We won't turn aside into the fields or the vineyards. We won't drink any water from your wells. We will go along the king's highway until we have left your territory. But Sechon would not allow Israel to pass through his territory. Instead, Sechon mustered all his people, and they went out into the desert to fight against Israel. On reaching Yahatz, he fought Israel. Israel defeated him by force of arms, took control of his land from the Arnon to the Yabok River, but only as far as the people of Ammon, because territory of the people of Ammon was well defended. Israel took all these cities. Israel lived in all the cities of the Emori, in Heshbon, and all of its surrounding towns. Heshbon was the city of Sihon, the king of the Emori, who had fought against the former king of Moab and conquered all his land up to the Arnon. This is why the storytellers will say, Come to Heshbon, let it be rebuilt, let Sihon's cities be restored. For fire burst out from Heshbon, a flame from the city of Sehon. It consumed Ar of the Moab and the lords of Arnon's high places. Woe to you, Moab! You are destroyed, people of Chemosh. He let his sons be fugitives and his daughters captives of Sehon, king of the Amorai. We shot them down. Heshbon's destroyed, all the way to Devon. We even laid waste to Nophach, which sends as far as Medvah. Thus Israel lived in the land of the Amori. Moses sent men to reconnoiter Yasser. They captured its towns and drove out the Amori who were there. Then they turned and went up along the road to Bashan. And Og, the king of Bashan, marched out against them, he with all of his people, to fight at Edrie. And Adonai said to Moses, Don't be afraid of him. For I have handed him over to you, with all his people and his land. You will treat him just as you did Sechon, king of the Amori, who lived at Heshbon. So they struck him down, with all his sons and all his people, until there was no one left alive, and then they took control of his land. Well, the 30-day period of mourning, Aaron, I guess, is over. So the Israelites are once again on the move, but they don't get too far. You know... There is simply no way to hide the movement of three million people. The word is out. And all the indigenous people of Canaan and those surrounding areas are watching Israel like hawks. Every one of these nations would have sent out scouts to see just where these Israelites were going. You know, Israel's intentions to move into Canaan weren't any secret. It was simply a matter of the route and the strategy of the conquest that concerned all these surrounding peoples. An unnamed Canaanite king, the king of an area called Arad, isn't going to wait for Israel to move upon him, and so he makes a preemptive strike. Now, Arad is a region located in the Negev. The capital city of Arad is on the western side of the hills that separate this giant rift valley 
that starts up by the uh, north of the Red Red Sea, uh, rather the Dead Sea, and goes all the way south to the Gulf of Aqaba. Um, and at first, Arad's forces gain the upper hand and, and, and take some of the Hebrews prisoner. And the Israelites are not battle-tested yet, and so likely they didn't fight all that well. But this is going to be a turning point. In, in proper response to their troubles, the whole community instinctively turns to God. And they make a vow that if he will lead them to victory, they will offer to him all the captured booty they take from the enemy. Now take a look. Open your Bibles again and take a look at verses 2 and 3. Most translations will say that if the Lord will hand the Canaanite people over to them, they will destroy the enemy's cities. Next it says that the Lord accepts their vow, delivers up the Canaanites, and so their cities were destroyed, and therefore the place was named Hormah, which is Hebrew for destruction. Well, actually, the vow was not that Israel would necessarily destroy the cities. Rather, it was that they would put them under the ban, B-A-N, ban. The Hebrew word used here is harem. And what this is indicating is a, a significant act of self-denial. I'm saying harem, H-E-R-E-M, not harem, like a, a king that has a whole bunch of wives. Okay. The Israelite army was a militia. Every man armed, armed himself and supplied his own food. So whenever an enemy town was taken, typically the victorious soldiers would loot the town. And whatever each man could take for himself was his reward, his, his pay actually, for his service and for the risks he took. But what the Israelites did was to offer God all the booty from these towns that they took in exchange for his supernatural assurance of victory. And by the way, the Israelites did destroy the towns in the process, but the vow was not to destroy the towns per se, it was rather to give everything of value that was captured to the Lord for his favor. The destruction of the towns was partly the process of taking the towns, and at other times it was partly the way of offering up these towns as a sort of burnt offering to God. Now in the next verse, verse 4, it tells us something kind of interesting. But we have to look at a map. Look at this map. Um, to understand the matter. At this time, Israel was right on the border of the land of Canaan. Now, now recall that their request to the king of Edom to allow them to pass through his land fell on deaf ears. In fact, that king even sent out some troops to stand in their way. Now, it's probably just saber-rattling because there wasn't any battle. Okay, And in the end, each side just kind of went their own way. And next we have Aaron being escorted up that mountaintop where he died, and his son, Eleazar, assuming the position of high priest. And then we have this king of Arad come and make a preemptive strike on Israel. This all happened over a period of a little more than a month. It all happened within a pretty small area, just a handful of miles in either direction, not more than 20 miles to the south and, and west of the Dead Sea. <clears throat> But verse 4 says that now they turned to go by the way of the Sea of Reeds. 
excuse me, got a little frog in my throat. <clears throat> in order to avoid going through Edom. Now, why after this victory over Arad, did they not just go straight north? Look at this map. If they went straight north, they would have been right there into the, into, into the nation of Canaan. Or why did they not just ignore Edom's threat? Especially now that Israel's flush with confidence after the recent battle victory. And why didn't they just take the route they had originally intended? Just go through Edom and end up at the Jordan River. Well, it is fairly well documented that going straight north would have run Israel headlong into an enemy that seemed undefeatable. A people known as the Sea Peoples, who would eventually be called the Philistines. Apparently, very early into their journey, it was decided that Israel should not take that route. Recall the statement of Exodus 13.17 concerning the route that God refused to take the Israelites on in their journey to the Promised Land. Don't turn there, I'm just going to read it for you. Exodus 13.17 says this, Now it came about when Pharaoh had let the people go that God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines even though it was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and they return to Egypt. See, God did not want Israel to go up against the Philistines, so going north from Arad would have bumped them right into Philistine country, which was out of the question. Why then didn't they go through Edom? There's absolutely no doubt that the Edomites would not have been able to stop Israel. I wouldn't even begin to venture a guess as to how many Edomites there were at this time, but as a nomadic society, it couldn't have been very many. Scores of thousands, perhaps. But how could that have ever matched up against Israel's 600,000-man army? It couldn't. No, this had much more to do with Moses' truthful plea to the king of Edom when he called them brother. Moses, and therefore apparently God, did not want the Israelites to annihilate Edom. Yehovah did not want the descendants of Jacob killing the descendants of his own twin brother, Esau. So after defeating the king of Arad's forces, Moses led the Israelites south towards the Gulf of Aqaba, which achieved the purpose of skirting the territory of Edom and avoiding conflict with them. Now this involved a journey of 90 miles south then about 15 miles east before turning around and going north again. You know, this must have really chafed at the people of Israel. Let me tell you, this is some serious desert territory they are in. Unpleasant to say the least. And it must have felt like they were backtracking probably at least a month's worth of travel. Therefore, as it says at the end of verse 4 and the beginning of verse 5, The people grew restive on the journey, and they spoke against God and against Moses. I think we'll leave it here and see what God does about this latest rebellion next week.